The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Glad you could join us today and very glad that our guests can join us today. Today we have Jim Motivelli, and he is the author of a brand new book, So Hot Off the Presses, I Literally Had to Wear My Oven Mitts While I Was Reading It. It's called High Voltage, The Fast Track to Plug-In in the Auto Industry, and it's the, the most cutting-edge information that you can get on what's going on in the world of electric vehicles, what's going on in the auto industry, not just in the U.S. Jim also covers what's going on with Chinese auto manufacturers and this whole movement to electrify our transportation. Jim is a regular contributor to the New York Times. He spent 14 years as the editor of E, the environmental magazine, and most importantly to this topic of discussion, he's been covering electric vehicles since the 80s, and there's really no one else I would turn to for the most panoramic, broad-spectrum perspective uh, in the world of journalism on the subject of EVs than, than Jim, and I'm so glad that you could join us on Go Green Radio. Welcome, Jim. It's great to be on. Well, before we dive into the details of your book, and I did read it cover to cover, it's an excellent read, um, I'm just curious to know who the book is intended for. Do you see High Voltage as sort of a an auto industry insider book, or do you feel like it's something that's meant for everyday Americans? Who's your target audience here? I absolutely don't see it as an auto insider book. I would have used a lot of jargon if I was intending it for that audience. I really intended for just average readers who are curious about electric vehicles plug-in hybrids and, and hybrid cars, and a little bit about hydrogen cars also. There's a whole smorgasbord of stuff. In a way, we're back to 1900, where you had electric, steam, and internal combustion all vying for the same audience. That's right. Now, in terms of, of high voltage, um, it just came out this week. Is that correct? It just came out this week on Tuesday, yes. That's pretty exciting. And how are you rolling the book out? How are you going to, besides Go Green Radio and our 2 million listeners or so, uh, how are you going to be getting this book in the hands of everyday Americans? Well, I am doing some talks around the country, but my main method is doing radio like your show. And I really believe in radio in terms of spreading the message. I do a radio program myself. And um, I think the, the old thing of the journalist doing the six-city tour and speaking at bookstores, I think that's kind of outmoded, really. <laughs> I agree. Well, and the great thing about being here with us on Go Green Radio is that not only are we airing live today, but this show is syndicated, and a lot of our listeners who can't catch us live on Fridays catch us on Tuesdays on the Green Living Channel of Voice America. And so uh, there will be many opportunities for our listeners to catch uh, the, the replay of this show next 
next Tuesday between 9 and 10 a.m. Pacific, and that would be noon to 1 on the East Coast next Tuesday. Well, one of the most typical concerns, Jim, that a lot of people have about electric vehicles is, of course, range. They call it range anxiety. And even soccer moms who do a lot of their driving around town all day can easily travel 30 to 50 miles in a day of running kids all over the place for activities and running errands, going to the grocery store, etc. And they're not going to want to stop in the middle of all that crazy day for a lengthy charge. What's happening now in the EV industry to address that range anxiety? Well, one of the things the industry often says is that people travel an average of about 35 miles a day. Maybe those soccer moms you're talking about do actually go 50 miles a day. I think that would be a lot, because one thing about soccer mom duty, and I'm a soccer dad, so I know how this works, you yeah. don't really drive that. You do a lot of short trips, but the total amount covered is probably not that long, uh, not that far. So uh, I think you could probably do that with an electric car just fine, because it does have a 100-mile range on average, and you're not going to cover that. In, in running around the kids for the Cub Scout meetings and stuff like that. So um, the industry says you, you're, you're really going to get over the range of anxiety because you'll find you don't drive as much as you think you do. Mm-hmm. And that may be. I do think that 100 miles is kind of limited for electric vehicles, but the good news is I don't think they're going to be stuck on 100 miles for very long. In fact, the um, Tesla Model S sedan that's coming out in a few months, that has range of 300 miles if you get uh, the bigger battery version. So I think we're going to see a whole lot of uh, vehicles that have longer range. As a matter of fact, I drove a uh, Rolls-Royce electric today, and that had a range of 120 miles. That was a 6,000-pound car. Oh, wow. Wow. That's that's more than even my minivan. (laughs) Over the long term, what are some of the the long-term goals? Is it just going to be bigger and bigger batteries, or what's coming down the pipe uh, to to extend the range even to a greater extent for EVs? Right now, the, the play, if you want more mileage, is really to do a bigger battery pack, and that's why the pack in the... um, Tesla Model S is something like 85 kilowatt hours. That's very big. The Rolls Royce I drove had a 71 kilowatt hour battery, and that's also very big. So um, one really good way to extend range is to make the cars lighter, and you see that happening with BMW and their new i3 Megacity car, which is coming out next year. That will have a lot of carbon fiber in it to make it very, very light, and that gets us close to what Amory Lovins was talking about with his hypercar. He envisioned cars weighing only a thousand pounds, and that's we're not there yet. Carbon fiber is really good for for reducing weight because it's stronger than steel, but a whole lot lighter than that. Uh, the problem is it's very expensive to uh, make a whole car out of carbon fiber. So BMW is sort of in the forefront of that. But the, I would have to say beyond that, we're going to see new battery chemistries and uh, new innovations in battery design, weight, and size that will also extend range. Mm-hmm. You know, another typical concern that I always hear from folks when we talk about electric vehicles or EVs is that even though there are no tailpipe emissions, they still cause carbon emissions when the electricity used to charge them 
comes from coal. Of course, you know, in many parts of the U.S. and around the world, a good deal of electricity does come from coal unless you happen to live next to a source for, you know, hydro or, or a great big wind farm or something like that. Um, you know, you, you touch on this, this issue in your book. Talk to our listeners about this, uh, this idea of, you know, we're trading tailpipe emissions for greater emissions out of coal plants or other dirty uh, electricity sources. Yes, that's a very important point. And I found when I was researching high voltage that there wasn't a lot of material on that, which seems to me very important. Because usually the most common objection I get to electric cars is that the, the equation you just made, that you're trading the tailpipe emissions for grid emissions. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it comes out a lot cleaner, even from a total coal grid. If you were to charge an electric vehicle solely from a coal-fired grid, and most of them have a mix of other things, even in the Midwest, but if you were to do total coal, you end up with an electric vehicle with a well-to-wheels footprint that's probably about the same as a Toyota Prius. Mm. So it's not some huge advance, but few areas have total coal grids. And the important thing to look at is that every year the grid gets cleaner in most parts of the country. And if you have a typical uh, internal combustion automobile, its emissions get worse every year. So that's a major advantage that uh, is continually improving its well-to-wheels uh, analysis. Is it fair to say that it's a little bit more of a of an incremental improvement than maybe what we've heard from EV advocates who who kind of give us the idea that it's like flipping a switch we go from completely dirty vehicles to completely clean vehicles is a little bit more incremental when you take in the you know the entire picture of how these electric vehicles are fueled Sure you could say it's incremental it it, it is to a certain extent it's not like totally black and white. Um, there are advantages to internal combustion engines in a lot of ways. And you also have to say that internal combustion engines are also getting a whole lot better. Since automakers have to reach a standard of 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025, that's really got them thinking about how to, how to do that. And one way they're doing it is by making the standard gas engine a whole lot better by using smaller displacement, start-stop systems, direct injection, um, turbocharging. A lot of these things have allowed the small gas engine to be a whole lot cleaner. So Mm -hmm. we're still going to see a lot of uh, gas engines in the mix with with EVs for quite a while to come. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ask the typical utility company the following question, I'm sure that they would all say, yes, absolutely, but really... Is our antiquated electricity grid equipped to handle the capacity and the unique load that would be created if Americans started buying EVs in significant numbers? You're right. They would say yes to that question. And they say that because they have a large amount of unused capacity at night. And they're doing everything they can, and the auto companies are doing everything they can to make sure that electric vehicles are indeed charged at night. And it's kind of easy to arrange, really, because your EV will have what's the equivalent of a VHS uh, timer, and you'll be able to set your charge. You don't have to go to the garage at midnight for the car to start charging then. You can set that on your cell phone, on your computer. 
these are going to be smart chargers that are enabled so that you can have a lot of information uh, while you're on the fly. You can check your uh, your smartphone, and it'll tell you the state of charge of your car and whether it started charging and whether there's a problem or not. Mm-hmm. So most of the cars are going to charge at night. The utilities, if they're smart, will make sure that there are cheaper rates for consumers to charge at night. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually been a problem with utilities. They haven't always offered those lower rates at night. But um, they say they can add millions of EVs to the current grid without it having the need to build new plants as long as they charge in off-peak hours. Is that true even if the EVs tend to be sort of clustered? You talked about a cluster effect in the book, and if uh, electric vehicle owners tend not to be sort of spread out geographically, but rather are clustered into certain zip codes or certain neighborhoods, can the current infrastructure of our grid handle that as well? That's a very good point you make, and it is an issue, and it is why utilities have studied one way to look at where the electric cars are going to be is to look at where currently people have Toyota Priuses and other hybrid cars. Mm-hmm. So I visited the utility in San Diego, SDG&E, and they actually have a map that shows Prius owners. Not only that, but it shows which of those Prius owners also have rooftop solar, which is very common in San Diego. San Diego. Mm-hmm. So if they have uh, that kind of photovoltaic system, they are not nearly as big an impact on the grid as if they didn't. So uh, they're looking at it on that kind of level. But I do think that EVs will tend to cluster. If you think of where there's a lot of Priuses in your neighborhood now, that's probably where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think they're generally going to be in upscale neighborhoods in areas where there's high environmental awareness. And um, you might have five of them on the same block. And that does present a problem because the transformers that uh, utilities put in these areas could be overloaded. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and are they doing anything currently to address that? Or are they just kind of in a wait-and-see mode uh, well, to react the, once the EVs are purchased? Or <laughs> what are they going to do? This is where the uh, smart grid ties into the electric car. Because at the mm-hmm. same time that we're preparing for electric vehicles, the utilities are also trying to make the grid smarter. Right now, if you were to go to those local transformers, the one that's on your block, it doesn't know where the big loads are coming from. That's why if you have a power outage, you have to call the utility to tell them. They don't even know that. Uh, With a smart grid, they would know that. They would instantly know where all the loads are, and they would be much better equipped to deal with EVs than they are now. So that's part of it. We're seeing quite a bit of uh, work on the smart grid, and I've been doing some writing on that also. But the smart grid and EVs go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. We're going to cover a little bit more of that when we come back. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but folks, don't go away. There's much, much more with Jim Motivelli and his brand-new book, High Voltage. So don't go away. More Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? 
or 14%. Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you. Every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I've got to give a quick shout-out to all my tweeps. Thanks for following me on Twitter, and thanks for all your insightful comments and questions. I love it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, check me out at at Jill Buck. That's at J-I-L-L-B-U-C-K, and join the conversation. Today, we are joined by Jim Motivali. He is the author of a brand-new book called High Voltage, The Fast Track to Plug-In, The Auto Industry. It's talking about all the latest and greatest personalities, technology, issues, challenges, and opportunities in electric vehicles. Really, uh, one-stop shopping for everything you need to know about what's going on in that world. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Go Green Radio today. It's great to be doing the segment with you. Well, you know, before the commercial break, we were talking about the smart grid, and I'd like to go back to that for a little bit. You know, one of the things that I find most troubling, and maybe this is because I'm a former officer in the United States Navy on Veterans Day. Uh, I, I want to give a little shout out to all my military friends. Um, but, you know, that made me a little bit, um, not paranoid, but aware that uh, not everybody in the world loves the United States of America. And we've been hearing a lot of reports lately about external, meaning outside our borders, outside our country's borders, hacking and some cyber attacks on our nation's infrastructure. And even the White House will admit this is an issue. Do you think it's prudent for America to move forward with the electrification of our transportation system if we can't protect our electricity infrastructure from cyber attack? 
I think that's a that's a good point. I think though you have to look at how vulnerable we are to foreign oil dependence. Something like 60% of the oil we use comes from countries, many of which are overtly hostile to the United States. Therefore, you can see things like the Arab oil embargo, where America was basically brought to its knees Mm -hmm. by an, an OPEC decision to not supply oil to the U.S. So our system is incredibly more vulnerable uh, from oil dependence than it is from reliance on a domestic source of uh, energy, which is electricity. Mm-hmm. So for those who would say, okay, Jim, stipulated foreign oil makes us vulnerable, so let's just drill here, stick with the engines we've got, and skip this whole electrification thing. What would you say to that? I would say that was patently ridiculous because there isn't <laughs> enough oil domestically to even begin to supply the United States. We can meet like 2 to 5% of our oil needs domestically. I mean, it's just not, it's not going to happen that mm-hmm. we're going to be able to produce oil, even with drilling off the coasts and all, all these other things that have uh, light up the, the phones on talk shows. I, I don't think that's going to happen. It's just we don't have enough resources. The uh, domestic source of oil peaked in about 1968, Wow. I didn't realize we, we reached peak oil that quickly. What about all these folks who are uh, talking about Alaskan oil and California oil off the, off the coast? Uh, still not enough, huh? No. If we were to drill in uh, what's called ANWR, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is a frequent uh, uh, call by uh, Republican candidates, and they're still talking a lot about that. Sarah Palin certainly made a big noise about it. Mm-hmm. If we were to do that, you'd probably get about six months of oil uh, in terms of U.S. supply. That's how much recoverable assets there are there. It's a lot of oil, but it's uh, not going to power the United States for very long. Right. Well, let's talk about another vulnerability to the grid. You know, we just had a big storm in the Northeast, and people in Connecticut have been without power for almost two weeks. What uh, what do the big wigs in the EV industry? How do they spin that kind of a scenario when they talk about electrifying America's light transportation? What happens when there's a snowstorm and uh, we're out of power? Well, again, I would uh, evoke the smart grid, which is set up to avoid the kind of uh, brownouts and situations like that we had in California, where um, the, really the utilities were put in kind of an impossible situation by the deregulation of electricity. The um, storms, and I, I would tend to relate this kind of event to um, the unsettled weather that is predicted as part of climate change. I think it's uh, very difficult to deal with, particularly I live in Connecticut, and um, I didn't have huge outages, but my brother has had 18 power outages this year. And um, when, you, when you talk rural areas where there's a lot of trees, they are very mm-hmm. affected by this, and um, it, it's a major situation. I think one of the solutions to it is to have more buried power lines, to not have them uh, stringing along through uh, forests, which mm-hmm. are very vulnerable to storm damage. Uh, that's something the utilities have generally shied away from, but I think it would be very effective. Well, and distributed generation wouldn't be a bad idea either. That is also a very good point. If we had more local resources, and uh, I particularly point to the solar um, resources in places like San Diego, which I mentioned earlier. 
mm-hmm. um, they're much less vulnerable to brownouts because they have a lot of distributed uh, generation. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of the same battery technology that is powering EVs is also being looked at as even utility-scale storage for things like wind and solar and other renewable energy sources that you know, are difficult to transmit over long you know, electricity transmission lines, but wouldn't be such an a inefficient form of energy if they were locally and, and in several different distributed locations created and stored, if that energy were stored and disseminated when it were needed. Yes, um, I think it, uh, it's very important to talk about battery backup. And one thing you can do is used EV batteries represent a really good source of uh, energy backup or energy storage. Mm-hmm. And utilities are looking at using them in clusters to be able to store intermittent renewable energy like uh, wind and solar. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're starting to see that. We're seeing experiments that are going on to determine how they work as energy storage. Mm-hmm. And it's estimated that 80 to 90 percent of the useful life of the battery will still be in the pack when it is uh, retired. So there's quite an opportunity. Also, it can end up uh, reducing the overall cost to the consumer of the battery pack if they can resell it for energy storage. Sure. So, uh, well, and alleviate that that concern that some people have about what happens to the waste products. Where do these batteries go when they can no longer power my vehicle? Right. That I is think, frequently yeah. cited by people, and it's something they really shouldn't worry, worry about because not only is there this uh, second use on the grid, there is also uh, elaborate battery recycling plans by almost all of the EV makers. They have thought about this, and they've applied solutions to it, so it's not really an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, on page 115 of your book, you have a quote by somebody who's been on Go Green Radio before, Robbie Diamond. He's the CEO of the Electrification Coalition out in D.C. He's a terrific guy. I respect him a great deal. But this particular quote that you have in your book gave me pause. Um, in response to the federal government providing about $300 million to help install EV chargers in 30 different communities, Robbie praised the idea as the best way to get electric cars beyond early adopters and deliver the keys to, quote-unquote, millions of American of typical American families. Now, I feel like I have a typical American family. We've got three kids, two dogs, and a minivan full of sports equipment and fold-up chairs for viewing their sporting games. I have yet to see an electric vehicle big enough for my family and all my kids' friends that's affordable. Honestly, Jim, do you think that EVs are suitable for the quote-unquote typical American family? I don't think we really have one on the market that's really set up that way. I think we're going to start seeing that next year. And um, how about, say, could you think you could move all those people and things and animals around with a Toyota RAV4? I don't know. I mean, we pack that minivan full. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe so. Third row of seats. Yeah, that that would help. That would definitely help. I mean, as as hot as the Tesla Roadsters are, (laughs) and as much as I'd love to drive one, it just wouldn't work for us. (laughs) Well, yes, but the Tesla Model S, they claim that's a seven-passenger vehicle. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, uh, I've seen that claim. I wonder if work. it can fit a hockey bag, you know, full <laughs> of hockey gear in there. We'll see. Well, I think on the Japanese market, there's already hybrid versions of minivans, which I think is something I would really like to see on the U.S. market. 
Me too. Uh, I, I think that would that's a home run, and uh, I don't know why we haven't done that. Unfortunately, the Japanese uh, hybrid minivans are on a platform not sold in the U.S., which is why they haven't brought it here. Mm-hmm. But I think they should redouble their efforts to make Honda and Toyota minivans that would be uh, hybrids. In, in terms of running them on batteries, I think that's quite possible. Uh, Chrysler definitely came out with these epic minivans that were electric-powered, but they were just an experimental vehicle in the late 90s, and they only made like 10 of them or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's quite feasible. I, if I was an automaker, I would be looking at this. And I should point out that the next Tesla model after the Model S is the Model X, which is a uh, crossover sport utility vehicle mm-hmm. based on the Model S. So um, I think, I think uh, automakers have heard your cries in this area and are definitely applying technology to it. Well, I hope so, because every time I talk about electric vehicles, for the past three years on Go Green Radio, I'm talking about people just like me. Everybody realizes that soccer moms and green moms and mommy bloggers have a lot of influence over the consumer market, and yet we're just not seeing an auto, that uh, an automobile that well, meets our main, needs the in this space. The for this is that the, the cars are, uh, these are very early vehicles. And they're really emphasizing trying to keep the car as light as possible. It's really hard to make a minivan that's also incredibly light and uh, perfectly suited for battery use. That's mm-hmm. a challenge to them. So they're going to not do it immediately. It's going to take a little while. Gotcha. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, much, much more with Jim and his great new book, High Voltage. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, 
information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today our guest is Jim Motivali. If you're just joining us, he's the author of a book that is hot off the presses. It's called High Voltage, The Fast Track to Plug in the Auto Industry. And it is everything from the history of EVs to the very latest and cutting-edge technology to bring electric vehicles uh, to the market in a big way. And I'm so thrilled that you could join us, Jim, because we're really digging in deep to some of the biggest issues and concerns that people have about electric vehicles. vehicles. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for the in-depth questions. Oh, you betcha. Well, on page 147 of your book, you have a quote from Derek Kuzak, a Ford Group Vice President of Global Product Development. And... um, one of the things that he said in your book kind of brought me to uh, a screeching halt <laughs> because this was the first time I had heard uh, this particular piece of information. He says that household energy use can double when an electric car is plugged in and that the EV is likely to be the home's largest single power draw. To me, that's a little bit scary, especially in this economy when we have one in seven Americans on food stamps. Besides the sticker price of EVs, do you think typical Americans are capable of absorbing that kind of an increase in their electric cost? Yes, I think they will because their gasoline bills are going to be taken away. If you simply transferred, took away the uh, gas bill and had them charge up EVs, their net uh, result is going to be a savings. So um, I don't think this is actually going to hurt people. It's going to it, it's going to uh, help them. The, the problem is the high cost of the purchase price of the EV. That that is off-putting to I think some typical American families. The operating costs are lower though. Mm-hmm. Because you, of the electric motor. People don't realize their full cost of driving a, a, a internal combustion car, but it's pretty it's pretty hair raising. Mm-hmm. Well, between another, oil another changes and EVs, all of that, sure. I got to say that EVs are going to require a lot less maintenance than uh, gasoline cars. Well, it's a great point, Jim, because a lot of people don't realize how much simpler an electric motor is versus an internal combustion engine. Right, that's why. Mm-hmm. On page 36 of your book, you have a quote from Mark Wagner of Johnson Controls, and he's talking about the price of batteries for EVs. Here's what he says. Increased demand is critical to reducing costs and making EV batteries affordable. But here's my concern. If we increase demand of batteries that require the sourcing of rare earth minerals from other countries, and right now China has a lot of those minerals for sale. Um, We discovered rare earth minerals in Afghanistan. Um, I'm concerned that we'll just be temporarily bringing down the cost until there's such dependence on those rare earth minerals for our transportation system 
that the countries with those assets will have us over a barrel. It won't be an oil barrel, but it'll still be a barrel. The more we need rare earth minerals, the more they can charge for them. Or worse yet, as we saw last year, and I tweeted about this quite a bit, when China decided to halt exports of rare earth minerals to Japan for a couple of weeks, I'm concerned that we're going to end up in geopolitical messes for rare earth minerals similar to the ones we're currently having over oil. What do you say to that, Jim? I think that's definitely an issue and a problem. And I think we've seen China play games with rare earth minerals and uh, use them sort of as a political carrot. And I think that's unfortunate because it's a very uh, it's very important to the U.S. for a lot of different reasons. And it would be great if we could meet all of our energy needs with um, products that are solely sourced in the United States. But, you know, the oil was put in the ground in places where it, where it is, and it's not always politically convenient. And the rare earth minerals are not always under American soil. What is it they used to say? What is our oil doing under their sand? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a reality we have to deal with. And uh, I, I think our trade negotiators have to really be getting on China about they're um, playing politics with rare earth minerals because it's not a good thing. Well, and I even saw not too long ago, couldn't have been more than a month, some uh, information from BBC News that the EU was beginning to stockpile rare earth minerals in advance of, of what they believe may be some problems. And I just think... Well, the same it, way we stockpile oil right now, sure. we, we, we do that. We have strategic petroleum reserves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just think it's one of those issues that often isn't brought to the forefront. We talk when, when electric vehicles advo- advocates get out there and talk about all of the virtues of electrifica- electrification of our transportation system, and they talk about how we can create the electricity to fuel these cars domestically. You know, we're not going to be importing electricity. That's true. But if we don't have the materials we need to create the batteries that run that you know, electricity, run that electric motor, then I think it's a little bit disingenuous to advocate for something as though it were going to free us from foreign oil when, you know, there are still some components we have to source from overseas. And it well, could well, let us. me make a related point, which is that we have large supplies of lithium in many countries. People often bring up to me, aren't we going to run out of lithium or isn't lithium in, in places where that are hostile to the United States also? And that's true uh, again, because some of the lithium sources are in China and in uh, Bolivia and in Chile. But uh, we have lots of lithium. Lithium is quite abundant. We're not going to run out of it, and it's not become scarce, and it's not going to threaten electric vehicle deployment. And many of the largest lithium reserves, as in Bolivia, haven't even begun to be developed yet. So uh, there's no there's no shortage of uh, supply. Mm-hmm. Not always convenient supply, but there's no shortage of it. Well, and it's not as though we don't have rare earth minerals in the U.S. We're just not mining them right now. I mean, there's a rare earth mineral mine in California that was shut down. They were polluting, uh, you know, some areas and, and, you know, there are places that we could look for domestic sourcing for that, in all yeah. honesty. Yeah, we. I don't think we're doing very much with it now, but it, there are possibilities for it. But we could, exactly. 
Um, you know, we've spent the majority of our time today talking about electric vehicles and American consumers. But I'm wondering, as we speak about China, if the future of electric vehicles is really more a bit westward, <laughs> more suited to China. Um, I've spent a lot of time on uh, Go Green Radio and in some of the consulting work that I've done in China. And they have a burgeoning middle class of consumers that will soon reach 300 million. And their country isn't strapped with the kind of debt that we are. So they're getting subsidies from both their federal and provincial governments um, for EV purchases. It's easy for us to think that the automotive world revolves around the U.S., but Jim, do you think that's changing? Do you think the automotive world's epicenter will soon be shifting to Chinese consumers? Well, this is why I have a chapter on China in my book, High Voltage. Mm-hmm. And I think that China is definitely the major future of electric cars. I think it will overtake the U.S. Right now, the U.S. is the largest market. And right right now, there's very few electric cars in China, nor is there very much infrastructure there. But uh, there are a lot of reasons why China will overtake the U.S. One thing, China is a major battery manufacturer for many different consumer items, and also, uh, there are huge government incentives. In some cities, it amounts to about $20,000 if you buy an, an EV. And the Chinese government, which gets to call the shots, it's not like uh, our messy democracy here. They simply say, we're going to electrify. And by golly, they will. <laughs> that is so true. And uh, so I, I think we're going to see uh, large-scale deployments of EVs in China. Right now, General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. So, and also the Chinese auto industry or auto um, sales are bigger than in the U.S. So it's moving a lot in that direction. And there are dozens of Chinese automakers that are preparing EVs. So I think even though it's not huge yet, it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because, um, you know, even one of the most famous American investors, uh, Warren Buffett, the Oracle, invested, uh, he's got 10% ownership in BYD, and he has even said, that's all that we were offered. It's not as though he wouldn't buy more stock in BYD. And BYD is a company in China that that initially was a battery maker, and they acquired a state-owned auto manufacturing company, and now they're creating electric vehicles. And they're not the biggest. I mean, Geely is a much bigger auto manufacturer in China, but they're also mass-producing EVs. Right, exactly. They just bought Volvo. So, uh, I mean, besides the fact that Chinese consumers are you know, increasing their purchasing power, talk to us about actual Chinese auto manufacturing companies. This is a, a huge shift for us. Well, there's a long section on BYD in my book, and I have uh, Warren Buffett in China with uh, Bill Gates, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, visiting BYD and uh, taking test drives. And uh, Buffett has been very uh, bullish on the company, but I can also say that the stock of BYD has been somewhat, shall I say, buffeted. (laughs) (laughs) And their, their sales are down from what they had predicted. And BYD has also said that it's going to get into the U.S. market, and that's been delayed a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've driven, I've driven the BYD cars, and a big problem is that in terms of safety, Chinese cars have not been up to uh, our standards here in the U.S. You can go on uh, the internet and look at some Chinese crash tests, and they're kind of disturbing. Yeah. 
um, Chinese cars have to get a whole lot, and, and safety is not a big focus of the Chinese auto industry. Which is why it's kind of ironic that they ended up buying Volvo because it's um, really the, the car company with the largest uh, accent on safety. Uh, so I think in order to sell cars in the West and to really be a threat to the Japanese or to the American domestic industry, they have to start building better cars. I've driven uh, the BYD hybrid car, the plug-in hybrid, mm-hmm. that um, they're selling for about $20,000 in China. And it had standards, I would say, equivalent to about a 1985 Toyota Corolla. Mm-hmm. And it, but it would do far worse in an accident than that Corolla. So um, that gives me pause. And right. uh, I, I'm not at all uh, worried that the Chinese won't develop quickly in this area. Uh, the Japanese industry, right after World War II, was barely existent, and they built it into something incredible. The Korean industry was barely existent into the 70s, and now it's a powerhouse on the world market. So I think anyone who thinks the Chinese won't be enormously successful, I think, is probably naive. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to happen overnight. I don't really see much success for the Chinese market in the next few years. But uh, I, I do think eventually we're going to see huge Chinese deployment here, and they could be a major supplier to the U.S. in terms of cars. Could be. Very interesting stuff. Folks, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we'll have much more with Jim and his new book, High Voltage. So don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today, our guest, if you're just joining us, is Jim Motivali. He is the author of a brand new book that just came out this week called High Voltage, The Fast Track to Plug in the Auto Industry. If you're curious and you'd like to learn more about Jim, his books, and uh, his own radio show, I'd encourage you to visit his website at www.jimmotivali.com. That's J I M. M-O-T-A-V-A-L-L-I dot com. Check it out. Learn more. And uh, I'm just so glad that you could join us, Jim. This has been a great conversation. I agree. Well, let's talk about charging for a little bit because we've talked about the grid. We've talked about a number of different issues with batteries. What are some of the challenges and likewise some of the opportunities inherent in fast charging devices? Well, it's interesting because I'm working on a story right now about Nissan introducing a fast charger into the American market that will cost only $10,000. And that sounds like a lot of money, but the previous ones were more like forty or $50,000. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge drop in the price of a uh, fast charger. The basic idea with a fast charger is you're talking about DC current and 480 volts, which is not what you're going to have at home. So the fast charger is a play for gas stations, big box stores, uh, movie theaters, you know, large-scale parking lots. It's a commercial thing. It's part of public charging. But you can charge an EV in half an hour at a uh, fast charger. And most EVs, a lot of the ones coming out now, are equipped to handle this, including the Nissan Leaf and the Mitsubishi i. They have specific fast-charging ports that use a Japanese uh, standard called Chidemo. And the U.S. is developing its own fast-charging standard, which will be out next year. It's not compatible with Chidemo. It's a whole new one. Mm -hmm. Amazingly enough, Tesla Motors, which likes to go it alone on a lot of things, also has its own fast-charging standard. So there are uh, a number of different approaches to this. But Mm -hmm. a $10,000 price is a real... um, breakthrough, I would say. I think we could see fast charging quite prevalent. And if you compare uh, charging your car to getting gas at a gas station, generally that only takes about five minutes. And totally filling your car from a fast charger is going to take half an hour, which is kind of a long time to spend at a gas station. So what you might envision is people just coming into a fast charge station and plugging in for only five or ten minutes and topping the car off, not necessarily filling it all the way up. I think we're going to see that. You know, there, we're starting to see more and more of these public chargers, and especially here in California. But talk to us about some of the issues with billing customers for public charging. How does that work? Well, it's working a number of different ways. Some of the early fast charging or some of the 240-volt level 2 charging has been free to consumers while the companies try to figure out how much they're going to charge for it, and how they're going to do the billing. But a lot of the uh, chargers are smart chargers that are set up for credit card billing, so they should be able to handle that. If you look at the GE Watt station or 
the ecotality or Kaloom charges, all all of them have that kind of uh, ability to handle uh, some somebody's uh, credit card swipe or something like mm-hmm. that. And um, they're Wi-Fi enabled or 4G enabled so that they can uh, uh, communicate with a central station, all that kind of thing. Check out your credit card. Um, so I think the, the the groundwork has been done to charge consumers. We haven't had a lot of uh, charging that that's really um, been uh, billed to, to homeowners yet. Uh, mm-hmm. One other model that we're going to see is public charging put in as a commercial enterprise by companies that shoulder the upfront costs of installing the charger, then split the revenue with a property owner. An example of this is Walgreens, which announced that it was installing 800 chargers at its uh, drugstores around the country. Mm-hmm. Well, those 800 chargers are actually being put in by companies as a commercial enterprise, and they're sharing the revenue uh, with Walgreens, which is providing the parking spaces. So mm-hmm. some of the public charging will be more expensive than home charging. Most charging is going to be done at home, maybe 80% of it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have incentives to charge at home because it's going to be cheaper and easier. So uh, it's unclear how important public charging will be. I mean, it is important, but it's not critical. Like, if you only charge your car at home, you can certainly get along because uh, you can plug in every night, and that's what people will do. We'll also see charging at workplaces and in public places, like I mentioned. Uh, the workplace charging is probably second in importance to the home charging. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, because it would be a reliable charging station you could get to every day. If you line up some charging stations at the mall, but somebody spends, you know, five hours in there and hogs the charging station that nobody else can get to, then it's a bit unreliable. I'm I'm also kind of wondering, as these for-profit charging enterprises pop up, if they're going to be paying any sort of surcharge to the utilities who are kind of hoping everybody's going to charge at home at night um, so that they don't have to increase peak load capacity um, during the day. People are fast charging and sucking uh, down a lot of energy at peak hours on the grid. I'm wondering how that will will work. Is there any discussion about fast charging and how the utilities will view that? Um, yes, I think utilities have. To me, they've really not done quite as much homework on this as they should. And if when we look at say urban charging, I think that's an area where the uh, utilities haven't completely solved all the issues yet. Because when you live in a city, and in many ways EVs are very well suited to cities, then you've got to think about how you're going to charge your car when you don't have a garage space. And uh, some people will have spaces in parking garages, and that should work okay. But there's not going to be curbside charging. This mm-hmm. is a big issue in China, too, because everybody lives in uh, high-rise, park, uh, high-rise apartment buildings there. And um, they do charge. Uh, they, they do keep their cars in uh, large-scale parking garages. So I think that can probably work out. We'll see how that rolls out. But we need to have more of uh, thought applied to charging, particularly in urban areas. And utilities need to have this more on their radar screens. A lot of them will say something like, "Well, um, there's not a lot of EVs yet, so we're not worrying about this yet." I think they need to have it a little more central to what they do. 
Do you think that's more the responsibility of the utility companies or the regulatory agencies, like in California, the Public Utilities Commission? Um, it's it's a factor of both because the regulatory agencies need to reform some laws that actually affect EV charging. For instance, in many of the um, states, it's illegal for anyone other than the utility to charge by the kilowatt hour for electricity, mm-hmm. which really hampers setting up public charging infrastructure. California has acted to uh, get rid of that law, and they've exempted uh, EV charging from that law. But other states just haven't got around to it yet. So it's created this patchwork of laws around the country. So regulatory agencies need to act as much as governments do. Mm -hmm. And also, some governments have been inconsistent with the uh, um, incentives they offer to consumers to buy electric cars. In California, they were offering $5,000 rebates to people who bought EVs. But then they ran out of money, and now they're offering 2500 So mm-hmm. um, that's been a little inconsistent. But, you know, what can you do? California is kind of financially strapped. California is California, that's for sure. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for being with us on Go Green Radio. Um, I hope that everyone will check out your website, jimmotivali.com. Check out High Voltage. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's a great book, and uh, I thank you so much for being with us this week, Jim. It was great and- to be on. You bet. Well, folks, have a great week. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a fantastic week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.